listening to a Culture Builders podcast. In the past two years, there has not only been a slowdown in achieving gender equality, there has been a regression. According to the UN, it is now going to take nearly 300 years to achieve gender equality, whereas at the beginning of the pandemic, it was 136 years. You're listening to a Culture Builders podcast, and I am very pleased to be joined by the author of those words, Leanne Meyer. Leanne, welcome. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. I know who you are. We've just had a really long chat that could have gone on forever. But would you mind just bringing to life who you are and what you do? Yes. So, I... Hello, everyone. I am indeed Leanne Meyer. And my, my tagline, please don't find me cheesy, but it's it's necessary. My tagline is gender equity at the heart of everything I do. And that really kind of supports, A, we'll get more into the book today, but it supports everything I do from a working perspective. So I'm the founder and CEO of a consultancy called Benefactum Consulting. And we focus on organizational transformation through the lens of gender equity. Uh, that means how can organizations build better infrastructure, better governance to support the retention, engagement and development of women? Um, on the other side, I wear another hat, which is um, I'm a social entrepreneur and I have a social enterprise called the Sororum. And that looks to support young women who are first generation professionals. Um, which I was one in my family, um, moving into financial services from minoritized and marginalized backgrounds. Um, And that's that same process of looking at how can we change industries, particularly ones that are labeled male dominated, um, to start really removing systemic barriers. What does that look like and how can they do better? But how can we also equip and arm young women who may not have that experience? And I set that up to leverage my experience, to leverage my network, to give these young women access to people, um, access to people and organizations that they wouldn't normally have. And then for good measure, I am a mother, I have two children and I am married and I'm based in Munich, but work across. I work across the globe. I was about to say work work across Europe, but I work across the globe. Uh, So that's me in a very long kind of nutshell. (laughs) I I don't think you should call your strapline cheesy. I think you should call it (laughs) purpose-driven. What better calling them than pushing gender? into the right places. You mentioned the book, so let's let's name check it properly. So it's called Closing the Gap, and the strap line is how to include black women in any gender equity strategy. I know why you wrote it in terms of it's a massively important subject, but personally for you, what, what got you started and what was the driver behind creating such, what is a practical guide on how to level the field for people? Yeah. There were several, there were several motivations. So I'm going to have to break them all down, some personal, some professional. Um, So the the first one was in the works, I've always had an affinity for kind of working, mentoring when I was at school, working with younger women, when I was at work, mentoring younger women, mentoring women in general. But what I started to notice within the professional space was in a bid to support women, a lot of organizations just didn't listen to black women. Like I just noticed it over and over again. And I'm sure you've noticed in, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg has been lambasted for many reasons, but the fact that she started lean in um, and it's in partnership with McKinsey and for 
I think for four years, even to today, it's five years in a row, they keep reporting that black women have the worst experiences in the workplace, yet still their experiences haven't improved. And for me, it was this part about how can we have such powerful people, such powerful organizations reporting on this and no one looking into it. <laughs> like that was kind of from the, 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 the professional perspective. From the personal perspective, it was also looking at things like missed opportunities to the women that I've spoken to, to the fact that black women are the most qualified, you know, and this is corroborated with McKinsey research, interestingly enough, most qualified, most ambitious, yet still when it comes to pay and promotion, we're still lacking. And I was seeing that reflected in my friends. I was seeing, you know, um, friends starting side hustles to get that, so that, that level of validation, seeing friends kind of checking out and having to deal with certain challenges that they weren't able to negotiate because there was so much that was against them that they just couldn't see. And as that was all happening, I started to build, I guess I started to build this picture and I could see this picture of what keeps happening despite black women having everything in their arsenal that should mean they should get promoted easily. And then I realized, you know what? It's because we're looking at the wrong thing. Loads of books are looking at fixing black women. They're not looking at fixing the system. And fixing the system means I can't start from today I have to look at the foundations of the corporate world. Um, and in addition to that, I know you and I just talked about this, that I was brought up from like a family perspective to have a voice and to use that. And using your voice can mean whatever it means to you. Um, it doesn't mean you, always, you have to be an activist on the street. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to kind of shout, but it does mean for me that I want to be able to create or I hope that my book has created a voice for those situations that when you're in them in the workplace as black women you are powerless to change them and it can cost you your career I wanted to make sure that those were spoken out loud thus removing the burden of black women to always have to explain that but also highlighting what invisible barriers are to those who aren't in that position and kind of taking out this us versus them, but actually saying it is a system that has been deliberately built that way. Some of us are disadvantaged to a certain extent. Some of us profit from that. What does that look like if you can never imagine what that is? And that was why I, I wrote Closing the Gap, because I wanted to close the gap of knowledge, but also to close the other gaps that exist, pay gaps, opportunity gaps, access gaps, all of those by by kind of really outlining and creating this book there's uh, so much i want to ask you now <laughs> trying I'm to think sorry. where to start <laughs> no 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 don't don't I, it's uh, the thing that stood out for me with with your book was just how wrong i actually am at the moment in terms of my assumptions about how things are moving and changing and the stat i shared at the start is a real slap in the face to say we're not moving forward in all the, the noise and the activity around equality and around black women's equality makes it seem very positive. And actually, your book says a couple of things. One is it's it's not. And then secondly, it's going backwards. But that point you make there about books and people trying to change black women, when you say it like that, it sounds so stark and so wrong. I think it's well-intentioned. But I, I, I think it's, I, I don't wrong any of those books. I think they are really, really well-intentioned. 
And I think it's like, I think like these books are, put it like this, these books are about getting yourself into the best shape possible, but they're not telling you what the booby traps are and the, 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 the tricks and the traps and the pitfalls. They're not telling you any of those things that you're going to face on your journey. So you might be in the best shape of your life, but guess what? And you've got the best trainers on, but guess what? You're going to be running through, I don't know, a bed of nails. Your shoes aren't, your shoes aren't protected. They don't protect you from nails. You're in the best shape, but your, your equipment, I nearly said that in German, your Ausrüstung, your equipment <laughs> is not, is not helping you, helping you get further. It, it, and, and, and this is the, the point of difference for me. A lot of the things are saying, you know, get qualifications, be able to negotiate you know, when they talk about negotiating better pay, all of those things are valid, valid points. But if the person that sits opposite you doesn't see and recognize your value, you can be the best person ever. You're still not going to get that pay rise. So for me, it's how can we, how can we lay open parts of the path? How can we lay open the the unintentional, well, they were intentionally created, but the unintentional perpetuation of some of these beliefs in the fact that organizations create policies and procedures based around them without ever interrogating that. And that's what I want this book to mm. also burst open, which is if you're a black woman and you're in the best shape of your life, read my book to understand the, the challenges and the backdrop and how we got to today. If you're an ally and you're thinking to yourself, well, what can I do to be an ally? Read my book. It's going to outline for you what some of the system, invisible to you, systemic barriers that are there and how you can pay a, play a part in helping to dismantle those. Um, so for me, it's all about if we are all very open in understanding what the rules are of the game, what the impact is of certain things, we can just as much self-reflect and check our own behavior as we can influencing the culture of the organizations that we're a part of. You make the point there about who should read this book. And it's always a question for me when I review um, documents around where, what's this intended for? To me, it seems like there's a real fallacy here that, that black literature is written for black people only. And I think what I'm hearing you say here is that it's critical that people across the spectrum of, of organizations read this book to understand because if we don't if we don't all read these sorts of, of um, books we don't see what you're trying to say and we just push the problem back to the person that's experiencing it and we don't step in and help correct and you you can't i, I talk a lot about allyship but the reason why i talk about allyship is because the principle and the tenets of allyship sit in discomfort right mm. and a lot of times Exactly to your point, a lot of times well-intentioned allies um, are asking those who are the most marginalized, oppressed to help them on their learning journey. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> your <laughs> face says it all. To, you, know, you don't need to ask the question. Start yeah. there because what you will find is you are asking more meaningful questions, but you're also self-interrogating and saying, well, I would have asked you that probably that's an inappropriate question that would have been a, an inappropriate question i know that now so instead of me kind of asking you a question that reveals how much i don't know i've gone back and i've gone hmm, 
okay, maybe I can do better here. So what's my next most meaningful question interaction that makes me a better ally, that makes me the better manager if someone in my team is a black woman, that makes me the better CEO if one of our targets is to increase engagement, you know, engagement, attraction, retention of black women within our organization. Read the book. <laughs> you know, it, would take, it would take some of that burden off because I know we talk about questions and we talk about being well-intentioned, but if the question that you as an ally is posing is a question that requires that person to teach you something, then you're not doing your part as an ally. In the book, one of the phrases that comes up is power and the need to understand power. And I, from my perspective, I see a lot of people getting quite triggered by that concept. Uh, but you explain it very well in, in your text. So just bring that to life for us in terms of why it's so important, particularly for a black woman, to both understand how it works, but also to be helped through that process. Yeah, like you use the word triggered. And triggered is such a funny word. It's a word that I don't like in general, but you used it in the correct sense. Um, because we have issues in general as a society talking about power, because we think about power in conjunction with abuse, misuse. So there's there's that element of it. So when So when we talk about the power pyramid and I say that white men sit at the top of the power pyramid, a lot of white men are like, but I'm not powerful. I'm not, I'm not abusing anybody. You know, even if I'm a CEO of a company, I'm not doing anything that's damaging. And it's, it's for, it's for every reader to understand that's not where the power pyramid comes from. It's looking at the fact that there is a system of preference created that way, which means that you do not have to do anything to be able to have more access. You have less challenges to cross it doesn't mean that your life's going to necessarily be easier what it means from this this particular perspective is you do not have to worry about particular things now obviously today we get to that point where people are like oh yeah well as a white man i can't get a job that's a completely different issue but just the construct of the workplace who was created to benefit and what the trickle down effect of that is when you look at how women entered into the workforce white women initially, but then black women entered the workforce. And this is post-slavery, i.e. office jobs, not working in the, not working on plantations, which had been happening since the 1400s. The whole creation of the corporate world was for the benefit of men, specifically white men. And the introduction of others meant compromise. And this is why the power pyramid is really important to understand in terms of who the system benefits to the greatest extent and who the system disadvantages to the greatest extent. And that all lies in context. It lies in history. If you think like at the origins of, before they had typing pools, you know, the beginnings of the corporate world and office work, other men were secretaries. <laughs> you know, all of it's been waves and shifts that so there wasn't a need. And I, one of the things I do talk about in the book is, you know, why are we fighting against so many gaps in general? Because the workplace was never, was never created or intended that society was going to develop to include any women in the first place. But at the very, very 
like outliers of everything definitely not black women so it's kind of the concept that I really wanted to explore and did explore and talked about it to also highlight to people who don't think that they have any agency in their position and they think about it purely from a I don't have the power to do it's not always about that it's about you are advantaged through the construction of this system therefore you have certain levels of privilege that you can use should you choose to be an ally because there are certain challenges you will not need to think about purely based on your race and or your gender. That's a, a really simple starting question there for me for an organisation around their culture, which is, as you say, so looking at our organisation, who does it benefit the most internally and who does it hinder the most internally? And that, that seems like a really powerful starting point. And I would imagine very few organisations are good at asking that question or, or good at solving some of the things that, that throw it up. I think they asked the question um, and obviously you've read the book, so you know when I talk about the meritocracy myth, they ask the question and they allow themselves to be absolved of any responsibility by saying, but we can't find the talent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's you always know, the excuse, isn't it? It's the same with right. women in in engineering, in any right. of the jobs. We can't find we the talent. We can't find the talent. We can't find the talent. Yeah. And it's like, it's not that you can't find the talent you refuse to acknowledge that there is several groups and you can split this in 10, 25 million different ways that have certain advantages. So if I've got, if I've got a jetpack on my feet and someone else had doesn't, I'm always going to get there first. doesn't matter if I'm tired. I've got a booster and we don't factor in what that booster looks like. We are not, um, we are not organizationally and sometimes individually prepared to look at those things that give us a leg up, two rungs up in an organization um, because our natural instinct is to go, well, you can't blame me for the fact that I've got these benefits. You're 100% right. No one can be blamed, but you have to acknowledge that you didn't just get it based on the fact that you're good at your job or sometimes you're not even good at your job. You know, circumstance, social capital, access, all of these things that you have easy, that, that come to you easier if you sit at the top of the power pyramid. You know, there, there are certain challenges that black women face in terms of challenging their credibility, people not respecting their authority, so if you say you have a particular experience, that's not going to be taken as valid. It's going to be, well, you just weren't good enough. So there's so much complexity and nuance in, in trying to understand not only the power pyramid, but also the impacts on daily life that make it more difficult. It's this part around making these invisible barriers visible, but also kind of throwing the light to say, look, be a bit introspective what is it that I do? And all of us are guilty of this. And this is regardless of, you know, if you belong to a minoritized or marginalized group or not, what is it that I'm doing that's perpetuating some of this behavior? And you can do that, whether you're a black woman or a white man, the different, the difference is, is the impact of that it has on the other person. It brings us back to what we were saying earlier about some of these things are just totally in invisible to those that have got them. And that, you know, your, your great analogy of the jetpack. You wouldn't even see it, would you? You'd just be looking behind you going, come on, it's easy. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's so slow, come on. Yeah. It's yeah. not that hard. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to 
pick up just briefly because I, I think it's a really you make a really interesting point about the the decry of white men at the moment saying we can't get jobs and I've, I've heard it from a few sources and my personal view is you can get jobs just all that's happened suddenly is the play, playing field of the jobs has leveled out and you're in there with everyone else and I still don't think it's level I still think there it's easier to get a job if you're a white man but I think that it's that point about power isn't it that the ask isn't we want all the power. The ask is could we have some please? And I think that a group of society is still desperately clinging on to their privilege and rank and power and screaming foul should anyone come close to it. I think it's also this part around you're right, like the the, the playing field is by no means close to even being level. And I'm not even gonna say I I don't even think it's it's that. I think it's the inconvenience of being challenged that's the problem. You know, women in general always have to, and uh, you know, think about this in terms of like female founders getting funding, etc. Women always, and and especially as Black women, I, I always talk about it. You know, the the basis upon which Black women tend to be promoted is on proof. They have to prove they can do the job, which once they prove they can do the job, an organization thinks, well, hey, this is cheap labor. I don't need to, I don't need to promote her because she's already doing it. White men, in a lot of cases, get promoted on potential. And what's happening is, is that they're being a lot of men are being a lot of white men are being asked to justify and provide a little bit of proof and not leverage so much potential. And it's an inconvenience. And it feels challenging and it feels uncomfortable. Because it is, because when when anybody has to do it, and I think that's the real source of discomfort. I don't think there's a change in the playing field. It's just that all of a sudden you're being asked questions to verify that you've done this and how have you done that and how can you demonstrate it. And I think for women, and if you just remove race from this for two seconds, women have been perpetually trained to always have to justify. If you look at gender-based behaviour and even just on applications, what do they say? A woman has nine out of 10 qualities, she won't apply for the job. A man has three to four out of 10 and he will. So women are kind of used to consistently justifying themselves. <laughs> so now when it's kind of coming to the interview part of the, the process, if a man's struggling to justify himself, he's got probably less of a chance of getting the job because women are practiced in this because we've had to do it for forever. So it's, it's just a skill set that's missing but it feels like an inconvenience. It feels like a challenge and it feels alien because up until this point it has been. I'm smiling, but because I think it's, there's that lovely image emerging of quite rightly a man floundering in an interview because he's gone in there thinking I've got this and he's up against four or five women who aren't thinking that and who are throwing their all at it, you know, and power to them not to him because I'm raising a daughter and I want my daughter to step into a world where she's got a better chance than, than perhaps her mother would have done but you in the book because I'm watching your face and I can see not not the exhaustion but just the kind of effort oh, that, no no that is that is fatigue because I haven't slept up in a week <laughs> yeah sorry we should for, for, for full disclosure you, you have, have had ill children um and you still manage to find time for this, so I appreciate that. But in the book, you do talk about the, 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 the where 
black women have to go to find those reserves of strength to keep going. When you talk about, you know, right at the start we said black women are more skilled, they work harder, they're bright, they're determined, and then they come into a working world that seems stacked against them, and yet they continue. And in the book you muse about this desire to do both the right thing but also not to give up. Just say a bit more about that. You know, if you if you look at kind of any social justice movements historically, black women have been at the forefront of that because somehow that's not somehow it's part of our DNA to want to remove injustices where they appear. And that doesn't change even in the workplace. And I think that's why you see so many black women in organizations spearheading all of these initiatives because it's that drive to make the workplace better, not for them specifically, but for everybody else. Um, But you can only keep doing that A, if your value in doing so is recognized, that's the first piece. But B, if you are truly empowered by your organization to make those requisite changes. And sometimes the the challenge that happens, or I would say the lure in the initial phases has been, yes, we're gonna support you. And it feels like you're moving somewhere, but fatigue and exhaustion step in when you've been doing the same thing for two or three years, you're being asked to show results, but you've been given, you, one of your hands has been taken out of the game, so you've not been able to do it because you're not being given budget, you're not being given the final say-so or decision-making powers. So I think, you know, at a certain point, and, and this is what for me is a really key part of all of this is, Black women shouldn't have to be their own solution at all. <laughs> And this is why the book's necessary, because it's like, this is what the organizations need to do, because thus far, you've asked black women to do their own, be their own solutions provider, do all the heavy lifting whilst not giving them any decision making power, P&L power to drive those changes. And then you go, nothing's happened. Well, we gave it a chance and now we're not going to do it again. They've been set up to fail from the beginning my book changes that now you don't set them up to fail but this is what this is how you might be doing it unintentionally i don't think everything's spiteful by 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 long stretch of the imagination there is a lot of unintentional behaviors that happen because they've not been interrogated they've just been accepted as this is what it is Hmm. um and and this is where for me i want the book to create thought and recognition of what you might be doing to bring about this exhaustion and fatigue i mean i think i reference this in the book you know symptoms of a dissatisfied employee when somebody stops giving their best it isn't because they're not good at their job it's because there's something else going on but you can forerun that we keep saying it and i'll say it again read the book if you're listening to this and you want to make things better read the book but there's a caveat there which you won't find it easy reading Despite what I've already said, you know, in terms of you, you are very measured, very positive given the, the the topic approach. But it's still, if you're in a big organisation that either intentionally or unintentionally is, is doing exactly what you're saying, it will draw your attention to all the things that you've got wrong and need to fix. And I know this is going to be hard, Leanne, but 
If I am, let's say I'm a chief people officer in a large organisation and I want to turn things around, what is step one on day one for me? What would you say? Okay, obviously there's a whole tome that you've created, but if you know you, you're, they, you step in the lift and they say, oh, I'm going to read your book tomorrow, but today I need one golden nugget. What is it? What's that first starting point for people that would start that ball rolling? Assume you know nothing. Assume you know nothing. Because a lot of the times we go into situations with a half solution in our heads and we try to have conversations with people and we try to prime them, right? Let's go in and have this conversation. Let's, you know, there's 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 nothing. There's there's no real casual conversation. So my thing is just go in there open-minded, assume you know nothing and prepare to feel challenged because ultimately all of this comes down to the worldview that you have is absolutely dictated by your different identities right let somebody give you their real scoop at the same time but you have to appreciate that that's not going to happen on day one it's not and you know there is no there is no one major step it's understanding and recognizing as well that trust takes time Okay. Before, so. before I'm going to share anything with you, I need to trust you. And for me to trust you, you have to almost over-index on doing things. I want to say doing things for me. I don't mean it in a quid pro quo sense. You know, I talk about in the book, uh, self-identification and data being used as a crutch, right? We can't help you unless we have your data. All the way around, right? Yeah. All the way around. Demonstrate, you know, demonstrate not just interest, interest is great, awareness is great, but demonstrate a willingness to take action by taking it. I don't, and that actually looks like different things in different organizations, whether it's the founding of an ERG, whether it's being very transparent about the budgets, whether it's saying that, well, you know, there, there are so many things you can do, but it's, it's being ready. I think it's demonstrating a readiness to take action. Um, in some way, because we have loads of conversations, don't we? Like conversations and meetings upon meetings um, with solutions already kind of baked in because I've done this before somewhere else. So assume you know nothing. Assume you know nothing. That's good advice. I, I, it, it's, I'm going to use that and steal it. <laughs> it's <really good>. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it does feel like a bit of a get out of jail free, doesn't it? And to, but I love it because... There is something going through my mind about how organisations start listening again to black women. And what I see a lot in our work is very vocal, very passionate, very driven black women who are written off as just, here we go again with their same old drum that they're banging. And they be become either seen as aggressive or just kind of stuck on a topic. And I, talking to you, what it opens up is the, the issue that actually the reason they're stuck on a topic is because it's not moving. Mm-hmm. And it's that, how do you actually, we need to listen, not nod and recognize, well, it's just them doing what they normally do because then nothing changes. Nope. Business as usual. Oh, I hear you. I appreciate where you're coming from. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now what? No, that's great. I'm, I'm really happy that you appreciate where I'm going from. So what do you do, what do, you do with that knowledge now? Um, and have you understood it? And have you understood why it's different to what you thought it was? Um, and we don't get that sometimes. We don't get 
the interaction where we go one step further, somebody speaks, someone says, yes, that was great. And then they go, what are the next steps? That is a very distant, not, it, it's not inhumane in that sense, but like it's not reflecting the humanity of the situation. Mm. It's a strategy point and we're going to do X, Y, Z because such and such. No, no. Gosh, I, I'm just going to re repeat what you just said, reflecting the humanity of the situation. I think that's possibly what gets missed so often that we see we're dealing with process and structure and procedure and we're not. We're dealing with humanity. I love that. And it is, it's akin to there's that terrible story as old that quote that you know, the, the, the starving child writing to the church saying, thank you for the Bible, it was delicious. It does feel a bit like that, doesn't it? That we're, we're busy giving the wrong solution to the problem that we see rather than listening to what the actual need is. Right. I always say help isn't help unless the person who is looking for it, det it determines that it's so. Like, you might think, as you said, I might... I'm hungry and you giving me a washing machine where I don't have, you know, I'm homeless and you giving me a washing machine doesn't help me. Hmm. But it feels good to the, to the giver, yes, doesn't it? Yeah. Look at my report. How many um, washing machines we gave to the homeless this year? Yeah, like, oh. like I've just done such a good job. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's that we, we become trite um, and we become really, oh yeah, well, we've tried that. We've done all of these things. But how have you followed up? Where are all these people now? Whether it's leadership development, where have you developed these young women into? Like, do they have jobs? Or have you just sent them on a course and they can't do anything with it? Like, what, how are we consequentially following up on our actions? How are we, how are we getting to that point where it's not just, we've done step one and now it's your responsibility to take this and make it work. And I think organizationally and also individually, a lot of the times we feel like the bare minimum is enough. Because I want to do that. And that should help them too. Once again, jetpack, no jetpack. It would help you to do that if you had the jetpack. If you assume you know nothing and you take that off and you acknowledge this this boosting mechanism, then everything looks very, very different. Um, and we're not very good at doing that either individually sometimes and organizationally, because ultimately it's organizations that drive, I mean, individuals that drive organizations. And yesterday I was having a conversation um, and I was saying, you know, one of the things that a lot of us don't do is we don't create the space to reflect. We talk about how we support just generally, um, you know, the eradication of different types of injustice, but we don't necessarily audit our behavior on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, yes. And I think a lot of organizations do something similar. In the grand scheme of things, they've got DEI initiatives, they've got D, they've got ERGs, they've got all of this stuff. But when it comes to actually listening to the experiences of their employees on the ground and taking action and taking on that feedback, it all falls on deaf ears because they think we've done everything by the mere existence of ERGs. Um, sorry, I should say employee resource groups shortened as ERGs. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Um, and I and I and I do hesitate to say 
these kind of solutions don't work because they do. But once again, I still think we have to start to think about, just like with everything else, consequences, meaningful consequences. What happens next? What happens next? What yeah. happens next? Um, almost road testing. Road, if, if it was an investment, almost kind of road testing and plotting that investment, plotting that trade and thinking about what happens when I do this? What does that trigger? What happens when I do that? Now, of course, there's unintended consequences, which is something slightly different, but what am I trying to get to and what, what does that engender? And if I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking about taking sustainable action, if I do this, is this a repeatable action? What happens next? But we kind of stop at the first one and we don't get to the second one. <laughs> and then we go, but nothing's happened, nothing's changed. Um, well, yeah, but, that but we did that once, remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that we did that once. Part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're all good around that. I, you, you just... Uh, Talking there, you you saying that you made the point they do help, and I think that that's the tone that your book brings, which is very much a yes and rather than a no but. I think that plugging it for you, you bring a lot of positivity to a very tough subject, and I think that that's welcome. It it feels doable, and it feels like you want to do what you're talking about, which is really important, and 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 start them the ball rolling and make the change and. It's something we talk about a lot, which is how things like large engagement surveys can hide what you need to hear. And you base it on numbers, you get it all wrong. And I think that's the challenge, isn't it? You, you could, if you looked at retention stats for black women, they're probably quite high. Because from what you're saying and what you're saying in the book, they dig in to want to make a difference. So they stick it out longer. So what the retention stats say is, look, great, we're doing it right. Actually, no, you, you don't have no idea about the quality of what's going on. So your point about assume you know nothing and go and talk and listen and truly listen and then ask how you can help rather than give help, I think really hits a tone for people. I think I put this in the book. I know I've definitely got it on a T-shirt because I was like, I, I want to wear this on my T-shirt. <laughs> and I was like, anecdotes are still data. Like, oh, and, again, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> anecdotes <laughs> are still data. Like, anecdotes are still data. Like, it, sometimes it just depends on who's... that. The difference between it being data, a survey, an engagement survey, whatever, yeah. it depends on who's taking it, but anecdotes are data. And what... If we were to anecdotally listen to an organised... Like, listen to feedback, that gives you qualitative insight that numbers cannot give you. Mm. But a lot of the time, anecdotes are poo-pooed as being a very rudimentary source of information, but they're not. They're no. probably the best piece of information that you could ever get. The challenge is they're really complex, and it's really complex to aggregate them, and that's where people fall down, because what's easy is to look at a number and say, well, you scored 4.7, and we need a 4.9. So there you go, there's the shift. Actually, an anecdote says, here's a rich situation you need to fix. And that, that's harder to do, but that's where the shifts happen. Well, I always think if you hear one anecdote, it's happening in another nine places, right? So for me, the presence of one represents the presence of many, but not everyone is empowered to say all of those things. Not everyone can say all of those things. But anecdotes never happen, you know, the th these situations are never in silos. They're never just one-offs. The reflections mm. of 
they for me the anecdotal stories that you hear or the anecdotes that you hear are usually a reflection of the real heartbeat and the real pulse of an organization that nobody would ever dream of putting on an employee engagement survey for fear of somehow being identified and it not being as anonymized as I think, but also recognizing that those forms of feedback rarely lead to real, like you said, they, they don't lead to anything. They just, they just, they're just marked somewhere in a vault yeah. and goes, oh yeah, that's unfortunate. I'm not sure that it's true though. And then they move on. And then maybe like four or five years later, something radical happens. And all of a sudden they go through the archives and looky here, there's been a trend, there's been a theme, there's been a problem. And it's been like this for five or six years. A lot of these, you know, I always think about sexual harassment cases. And when like a big cheese gets taken down, the notes have been there for years. <laughs> But it was always an anecdote that was never taken seriously. You mean they didn't just wake up one day and walk into work and sexually harass someone and get sacked instantly? Is that not right. how it happened? No, you're absolutely right. You are right, isn't it? And maybe, of course, that's what happened. But, you know. It's how many rocks get into your shoe before you finally stop and take it off, isn't it? I think that's that's a lot of what the, the, the things here that one stone you could ignore and then it eventually it has to get so painful, but then you're faced with all the, the content. We'd better stop because we're going to get into new topics and we'll never get to the end okay, of this well, podcast. So again, full transparency, this is our second shot at this one, isn't it? We've taken us two sessions to get this in. And I feel that we could, we could and we should and we will talk again because there's so many rich topics. And I think I, my sense is that this is your first book of many. Thank you. I hope so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I have ideas already, but let's see what happens. Yeah, it's like childbirth, isn't it? You need to forget the pain of the first one before the next one. <laughs> People can't see your face, but it, it speaks volumes. Leanne, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for your wisdom and your positivity around what is a, a tough, serious subject. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot from talking to you, and I hope the listeners have as well. And I really hope your book is a success. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me. It has been fun. Two times over. <laughs> yes, come back soon. <laughs> Thank you for listening to a Culture Builders podcast. 